Please turn with me in the Book of Praise to page 555, where we have Lord's Day 39 of the Heidelberg Catechism, in which the church confesses the meaning of the fifth commandment. So the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And then Lord's Day 39, what does God require in the fifth commandment? That I show all honor, love, and faithfulness to my father and mother and to all those in authority over me. Submit myself with due obedience to their good instruction and discipline, and also have patience with their weaknesses and shortcomings, since it is God's will to govern us by their hand. So far, the Catechism. <clears throat> In response to the preaching, we'll sing hymn 56, in which we ask the Lord to bless us to walk in His way. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, <clears throat> This afternoon, we arrive then at this fifth commandment, which marks a transition. We're just transitioning from the first table of the law to the second table of the law. And you'll recall that we spent time looking at the first four commandments, all of which deal directly with how we are to live in relation to God. And now, in this second table of the law, we will look at the last six commandments, all of which teach us our duties toward our neighbor. So we're looking at the neighbor more directly now. And the first neighbors we meet in life are, as a rule, mom and dad. This fifth commandment deals with the nature of our relationship with our parents which we quickly learn is a relationship of authority. Parents have authority over children. The commandment calls us to honor father and mother, which means that as children we are to esteem, we are to respect, we are to love, and we are to obey mom and dad. As Paul says in Ephesians 6, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And just as we've seen in the other commandments, so with this one, God is instructing us not just in the limited area of parents to children, but He's instructing us about our duty with respect to all human authorities. It's the area of authority, that's the fifth commandment, that includes, for example, teachers at school, elders in church, and the civil government, and others. We are called to esteem each of them. We are called to love each 
authority, we are called to obey each of those authorities. And yet, that's not always so easy or straightforward, is it? Are we to obey the authority figure at all times? Under every circumstance? What about when we don't like what they tell us to do? What about when it's costly or hurtful to obey their instruction? Does God ever call us to disobey? Are there times when one Christian might decide they must disobey the authority, while another Christian under the same command might decide to obey, and both could be right? Is that possible? And I mean right in God's eyes. I think it's particularly the authority of the civil government, and by that I'm referring to, for example, the Premier of Ontario and his cabinet, and the Prime Minister of Canada and his cabinet, and also the municipal authorities, the Mayor of Hamilton and the Council. It's the area of civil authority that we've had the most concern with and the most questions about in these last two years, haven't we? We've had to face things we have never had to face before, government mandates and restrictions to our long-enjoyed freedoms that we've never had removed from us before. We faced tough choices, and we've not all made the same choices. How do we navigate something like that? What is pleasing to the Lord? Where do we turn for answers? Well, brothers and sisters, we go where we always go. We go to Scripture. And we go to our Savior. We, we look to the Word of God for guidance on the principles that are at stake here. And we look to our Savior, Jesus Christ, for the perfect example of how to put these principles into practice. And with that in mind, I bring you this word of the Lord. Follow Jesus in honoring all authorities. We'll take a look at the responsibilities of authorities as well as the responses to authorities. Well, let's start with a very basic principle that all humans and all of human life is under God's authority. I don't think I have to convince you too much about that. We know this from the fact of God's creation. God created the world and everything in it. He especially created man in His own image. So man is God's creature, and man will have to answer to his Maker for everything that he does. Many passages in the Bible make that clear. For example, the words of Christ in Matthew 12, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So there's a judgment day coming for everybody. That means every human being is answerable to God, also those who serve in authority as well as those who submit to those authorities. 
So to focus then first on the authority figures, they, as well as those who submit, but they, the authority figures, have certain responsibilities toward their maker, toward God. That's their first duty in life as an authority figure is a duty to God because God made them and God put them there. Whether that's parents and how they go about parenting or teachers and how they go about teaching or elders and how they go about governing the congregation or government officials and how they rule the citizens of a country. We sang about that last example, civil authority in Psalm 82. In solemn courts, the gods, and you understand that's Scripture's term for the civil authorities, the gods assemble before the Lord, they stand and tremble. There in their midst, He, the Lord, takes His place, and they, His righteous judgment, face. So in Psalm 82, when you have it in Psalm 50, with which we started the service, called to worship, same thing. You've got God calling the civil authorities of His people on the carpet and condemning them for their failure to judge justly, to do what is right, and to do their work without partiality. Now, when you reflect on this basic teaching that authority figures have to answer to God, a couple of things come out of that. No human authority is ever absolute. That means that no human authority ever has unreserved or total authority to do whatever they feel like doing. Only God, the Creator, has that kind of authority. Only God can do whatever pleases Him. And actually, that's good news, very good news, because we know that God and God alone is pure and holy and good and just. So God will only ever choose to do what is good and right and beneficial for His creatures. So even though God has all authority and it's unlimited and it's absolute, God will never be a tyrant He'll never function as an oppressive ruler or some tin pot dictator. And also, this teaching is a comfort because it means that every human tyrant, of which there have been many in the history of the world, and every oppressive dictator or tin pot dictator and oppressive despot, whether that be you name the authority, whether that be a father in his home, there's been more than a few of them too, sadly, or a teacher in a classroom, or an elder or minister in the church, or a ruler of a nation, each one will certainly be called in God's courtroom before His judgment seat for every word and deed they've done. They will be judged. Every human authority is under God. In fact, they're in those positions specifically to do God's bidding. That's the second implication of being answerable to God. And whether these human authorities, these civil authorities and other authorities, whether they acknowledge God or not, that's beside the point. Every authority has the responsibility to carry out their duties to the honor of their master in heaven. 
We read about that in Romans 13, verse 1. There is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Verse 4, for he, the authority, is God's servant for your good. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. This authority figures are servants of God. They have the calling to do good. That means to do what God wants them to do vis-a-vis those under their charge. They have to do them good, not evil. We confess this in Lord's Day 9 as well. We are to submit ourselves with due obedience to their good instruction. Not their evil instruction, but their good instruction and discipline. Paul stresses in Romans 13 that it is precisely because the civil authorities are servants of God, doing what God calls good, that we Christians must respect them and submit to them. They're His agents. Now, we'll speak more in a moment about our task towards authority figures, but right now understand that whether it was the emperor in Rome in Paul's day or the emperors in China from long ago or the, the kings of Europe in the Middle Ages or the prime ministers and presidents in democracies today, all are given authority by God as His servants to do good for their citizens, that is, to put into effect God's good commandments in their lands. Rulers of whatever kind are called by God to serve those beneath their hand. They're servants to serve the benefit of those people they rule. That requires, on the part of the authorities, sacrifice, self-denial. Did that always happen in history? Does it happen currently? Sadly, many times not. But man's disobedience or ignorance of these things does not change the structures put in place by the Creator, nor will it change the outcome on Judgment Day. The Lord God is the avenger of the wrongdoing of the authorities. As we read in Romans 12, verse 19. So... There's quite a weight on the shoulder of authority figures, whether it's civil or in the home or church or work or wherever. There's quite a load of responsibility there, isn't there? Judgment day is coming, and all authorities will have to stand before God and render an account, and they will be judged. The Lord Jesus Christ has been given authority to judge the living and the dead. What will the civil authorities of this world say when they are standing before that throne? What will we say for ourselves? Many of us here hold positions of authority in the home, parents, in the classroom, at work, as an employer, in the church, as office bearers, are you and I carrying out our office and calling according to God's commandments? Are we 
servants for those under our charge, be it our kids or our flock or our students in the classroom or our employees. Before we take the speck out of our neighbor's eye, we must first take the log out of our own eye. And what then about our responsibility as church toward the civil authorities? How will the civil authorities know what God's will is for them as rulers unless someone explains it to them? They're going to stand on judgment day. How will they know what to expect? Certainly individual Christians may and do work for the government and may speak words of wisdom. And we have an organization like ARPA doing that more and more. But wouldn't it be loving and kind and very fitting if we as church, with greatest of respect and esteem and love, remember, would seek to discuss with our civil leaders the will of God for them and urge them to follow God's commandments? I mean, if the church doesn't inform the civil authorities of God's will, who's going to do that? In the same way that the church proclaims God's Word as it applies to the, the role and the calling of parents and teachers and office bearers in the church, we should also seek to share the light of God's, words, God's Word with our civil authorities and in that way seek the good of our land for the glory of our God. There's one other key responsibility of all authorities, we haven't touched on yet, and that's this, that each authority has to stay within its own limits and must not encroach upon the, the authority of another authority figure. This is clearly recognized in human society, also in Canada. For example, there are three levels of civil authority in our country. We've got the federal government, the provincial government, the municipal government. Each of them has their area of jurisdiction, and none may encroach on the other. For example, the federal government may make laws about trading goods with other countries. The provinces may not make their own laws for that. On the other hand, the federal government cannot make any laws about education and public schools. Only the provincial government can do that. So each particular governing authority has its slice of the pie, so to speak, its area of jurisdiction, which limits their reach. In Canada, we have this inscribed in law. But we know that this is a biblical principle, right? It's not just a happenstance that it turns up here in Canada. In the Bible, for example, parents are given authority over their children, but they're not given authority over their neighbor's children. Right? I, I can't just march into your home and tell your kids what bedtime they're going to have, right? That's up for you as parents. 
A wife is called to submit to her own husband, but she has no calling to submit to any husband out there or any man beyond her husband. The civil authority in one country has no business making laws for citizens in another country. Every authority figure has its prescribed limits. It has to stick to his or her area of authority and the people over which they've been given authority, and they can't go outside of that. Let me give another example. If a high school teacher assigns homework due, let's say, next Wednesday, well, the students will accept that from the teacher. They might groan at the homework, but they understand that such an instruction that belongs properly uh, to the office of the teacher, so they receive it, they, they mark it down, and they obey. But what if the same teacher also said to the same group of students that they were not permitted to go to the mall after school from that day forward without giving any reason? The teacher just said, look, you're prohibited from going to the mall after school until further notice. What would the students think about that? What would the students do? What should they do? Does the teacher possess the authority to give that kind of command to the students? If the teacher commands something outside of her authority, does God call the students to obey? And that takes us into the matter of how God wants us to respond to authorities. For there is no doubt from the Bible that we are called to honor and obey all authorities. The fifth commandment states that regarding parents, and we read something very similar in Romans 13, verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority, that, uh, there is no authority except from God. Paul says it even more forcefully in the following verse, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So if you just took the fifth commandment and Romans 13, you might walk away with the impression that submission and obedience to parents and civil authorities and thus all authorities it's to be automatic. It's to be without thinking on our part. It's just to be done exactly as the authorities wish. No questions asked, no fuss, no muss. It sounds like we are to render to the authorities absolute obedience. Yet, we've already established from other parts of the Scriptures that no human authority ever has absolute authority. So, it must follow that no human being may be called upon to give absolute obedience to such a human authority. We only give absolute obedience to the Lord. And in fact, the Bible itself tells us that there are times when we must disobey human authority, also the civil authorities. In Acts 5, verse 27, the Jewish ruling council, they arrest the apostles, and they bring them in for questioning. 
the high priest leads the questioning, and I quote, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. That's the name of Jesus Christ. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. In other words, the high priest is saying, you, we gave you a direct order, you twelve, and you have flagrantly, publicly disobeyed our order. Were the disciples disobeying the fifth commandment? Were they sinning against God by what they did? Were they violating Paul's commandment to be subject and submissive to the civil authorities? The answer is no. Because as Peter explains in the next verse, we must obey God rather than men. You hear that? We must obey God rather than men. He speaks respectfully, but just like Jesus did to His mother this morning, right? He had to curtail uh, what she was trying to do respectfully, but he speaks, Peter speaks unequivocally as he draws a line in the sand. We must obey God rather than men. When the men of the civil authorities go against what God commands, then the thing to do is obey God's Word, and that is obedience to the fifth commandment. The civil authorities, remember, they're only supposed to make laws and rules which enable and encourage the people to obey God. The civil authorities are servants of God. That's their job. But when those civil authorities command something contrary to God's will, then God's will must trump their will. And it was surely against God's will not to preach Christ publicly. And so the apostles did the righteous, holy, godly thing by disobeying the civil authority. They were beaten for it. But they went their way rejoicing, knowing that they were held in honor by the top authority, God. They did honor the authorities in that case, by disobeying their evil instruction. We find this worked out further in the ministry of the Lord Jesus in His earthly ministry. Some people, recognizing that example or that exception to obeying human authority from Acts chapter 5, they say, well, okay, we must obey every instruction or command of an authority figure as long as they don't tell us to disobey God. That's the only exception. Like the, they were, like the apostles were told to disobey Christ. One single exception. Is that really truly biblical though? Of course, everyone will agree that we must never disobey a clear command of God. But is that the only time we may disagree and even disobey an earthly authority? What about that teacher's command to her students not to ever go to the mall after school? I mean, it's not a sin, right? She's not asking them to do a sin. It's not disobeying God if you never go to the mall again, right? 
Some of us might find that a relief. But does God expect the students to simply obey that teacher, no questions asked? Well, that is not what we learn from our Savior. We actually saw an example of that last week when we looked at Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees in Mark 2. I'm just going to rely on your memory for a moment. You recall how the Lord and His disciples were walking through the grain fields on a Sabbath day, and the disciples, they started to pluck some heads of grain and eat them. Now, the Pharisees, as part of the Jewish ruling council, so this was both church leadership and civil leadership rolled into one for the Jewish people, they had actually made rules about those, that kind of thing. They made a rule preventing exactly what the disciples were doing. The Jewish leaders had the authority of God to make laws for the Israelites. And yet Jesus defends His disciples' disobedience of their man-made laws. Were the Pharisees commanding the disciples to sin? Were they instructing them to disobey God? No. It would not have been a sin if the disciples had simply gone hungry for that day and then on the next day gone to buy food or pick heads of grain. They could have chosen to do just that, right? But they didn't. And even though they broke the commandments of the legitimate civil authorities, Jesus stands up for them. He defends them. Why? Because those particular commands were oppressive to God's people. They did not line up with the purpose of God's law. They created an unnecessary burden upon God's people. They were not bringing good to the people of God. And God's law, that's what it's designed to do, to bring good to the people. Remember how He set Israel free from slavery in Egypt. He brought them to Himself at Mount Sinai. And there, as God's newly set free people, there the Lord gave them the Ten Commandments. Why? So that they could learn how to enjoy their newfound freedom. It's the law of freedom, as James writes about. It was to teach them to live in their new freedom, to enjoy life in fellowship with their God. And time and again in the books of Moses, the Lord would remind His people that He had done exactly that. He had rescued them. You're not slaves anymore. You are to be my free people. You're not to be enslaved again. You're never again to be under oppression and tyranny and misery. And you must not allow anybody in your midst to be under tyranny or oppression. So help the widow and help the orphan and help the poor. Make sure they've got enough food. Make sure they're not bound beyond seven years of, 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 of servitude in case they come into debt. Make sure they go free every seven years. His people had to be free. The law was meant to do that. Keep them free. So when Jesus came to His own people, 
to the Israelites. And when he observed the many additional laws that the Pharisees and the scribes had put into place and the effect that these laws had on the people, what was Jesus' reaction? He rebuked them for their hypocrisy. Matthew 23, he rebukes them for tying up burdens on people's shoulders that were hard for them to bear while the scribes and the Pharisees didn't even lift a single finger to help them. These authorities gave no thought to serving. That's their calling, remember. They gave no thought to serving those under their charge, but rather they used their authorities to puff up their sense of self-importance, to make themselves powerful and rich, and to oppress those under their care. They were abusive. And so when that hypocrisy was on full display, Jesus did not hesitate publicly to resist those abusive authorities. He dared to push back even against a direct order of a ruler, as we read in Luke 13. Maybe you want to turn there for a moment to Luke 13. Verse 10 and following. It was... Once again, the Sabbath day, Jesus had just healed a woman in this event from being bent over for 18 long years, and yet we read there that the ruler was indignant. Verse 14, he was indignant. He was ticked off, and he gave this ruling in response. This is an official ruling from the authority of the synagogue, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. That's his ruling. This ruler quotes from the fourth commandment and he gives an instruction. Is he asking the people to sin? Does he command the people to disobey God by letting the Sabbath day be a day of rest and telling them to come on any of the other six days for healing? Had the people obeyed the ruler, would they have sinned? No. And yet Jesus fires back to the ruler with even more indignation than the ruler had. You hypocrites! He calls the ruler and his class. Does not each of you on the Sabbath day untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And look at this. And ought not, there's a must there, ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, ought not she to be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? The synagogue ruler was not doing good as God wanted it to be done to the people under his care. He had lost sight totally, as all the Pharisees seemed to have done. He had lost sight of the intention of the law as a law of freedom, a law that fosters freedom and joy and harmony and fellowship. And he was using the law to bring the people down, to micromanage their lives, and to keep them under 
some kind of human authority, and for that, Jesus chastises this ruler and flips his ruling. And the people rejoice because they understand the freedom that they are receiving from the Lord Jesus. So, brothers and sisters, this principle of Scripture that some have made out is not as simple. It's not as cut and dried as as long as the authority is not commanding me to disobey, I must submit and obey. There's more to it than that. These examples of of Jesus demonstrate that. Even Paul, who wrote Romans 13, demonstrated that. You remember Paul, after he became converted and was in the city of Damascus, well, it didn't take long, he upset the authorities, the civil authorities of Damascus, and they issued a warrant for his arrest. Would it have been a sin for Paul to turn himself in, to to honor that command of the authorities? We want to arrest this man. We want to, to have him before this tribunal. Would not have been a sin if Paul had walked into the local, whatever they had, police station, and to the local authorities and said, I'm Paul, I'm turning myself in. That would not have been a sin. Yet what did Paul do? He snuck out of town in a basket over the wall, and he went on his way. He did not obey those human authorities. They had a wicked intent. So we have to expand that principle. The authority must be commanding something which agrees with the intention of God's law. Jesus said, spoke about the intention of God's law in Matthew 23 while He was upbraiding the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. It's in verse 23, he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. So really, really small things, you tithe it, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Then he names the weightier matters, justice, mercy, faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. It's fine to tithe mint and and cumin and other things, but you must remember justice and mercy and faithfulness. Those are the solid guideposts by which we examine rules that are given to us by parents or teachers or elders or governing officials. And don't get me wrong. Of course, From our side, we start with, we have as a basic disposition, a posture of submission, okay? I'm not preaching rebellion or revolt. We start with a posture of submission, a desire to obey, and we will not be hasty with our judgments or reactions. We must esteem. We must be patient. We must be long-suffering with those in authority. And yet, along the way, we are called to discern, to discern what is being asked of us or demanded of us, and then we must do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. Imagine for a moment 
if the government of Ontario made a law that from this day forward, all immigrants coming into Ontario, they were only permitted to work blue-collar jobs. For whatever reason, if the government decided this, they, they could prohibit immigrants from working any white-collar jobs. So no office jobs for immigrants, only blue-collar labor jobs. What, what should we as Christians do if that law were to come down? It's not a sin to work a blue-collar job, is it? There's lots of need for blue-collar workers, so maybe, maybe this is for the best. Or would we think, wait a minute, this is not fair, this is not just to treat a group of people with prejudice and to limit them in this way? That's not just. Newcomers get these types of manual jobs and long-time residents can apply for whatever job they wish. That's not right. Would it then be wrong to send in letters of protest to the government or should we just submit? Would it be wrong to defy that law and actually hire an immigrant for a white-collar job if we had the ability? What if it wasn't immigrants that were singled out in that manner, but a religious group like Jews or Muslims or Christians. Let's take another scenario. What if the government enacted a law which actually goes against other laws of our country? The foundational laws as we have them in our Constitution and our Charter of Rights and Freedoms. If the government acts lawlessly, should Christians stand by and submit and support that? Ought we not to refrain from obeying and respectfully do that and then respectfully make our concerns known to the authorities and perhaps also to the courts of the land? These kinds of decisions won't be easy and it may take time to get clarity on what exactly is going on, but brothers and sisters, we may not, we, we not only may resist in a scenario like that, but we ought to resist. The Lord would call us to seek justice and mercy and faithfulness in our land. Those are huge factors in assessing whatever comes down from an authority figure. And another factor is jurisdiction. The high school teacher that I mentioned simply has no jurisdiction, does she, over where students go after school hours. That's not her bailiwick. That's not her charge. The parents of those students have that authority, not the teacher. So in that scenario, the students should be looking for a respectful way to communicate to the teacher that she has overreached her authority. They might consider speaking with her, a few of them after class, respectfully, always respectfully. Or they could consider talking to their own parents, and then the parents could dialogue with the teacher and perhaps with the principal if necessary to kind of 
clarify that this, in fact, was an overreach and should be pulled back. But in the end, the students do not need to obey a command of a person who has no authority to give such a command. Even if it is a teacher or if an elder comes into your home and, and, and says something that's outside of his bailiwick or if it's the government of Ontario. God gives to each authority a task with parameters and inside those parameters the authority figure must remain. Brothers and sisters, let us, be, let us be wise about these things. Let us be very careful and cautious in these matters. Remember that our default as Christians, as followers of Christ, our default is to submit and obey. We need to recognize that naturally within us there lives a rebellion, rebellious heart and we must not give to that rebellious heart oxygen. We may not be rebellious against authority just because we don't like what we're being told. But for the Lord's sake, there may be a time where we have to take our stand against authority. An authority that is becoming oppressive that has lost sight of justice or that is outside of its jurisdiction. And sometimes we may need to suffer for doing good, like those apostles got beaten. They stood up and they did what was right. In God's eyes, they suffered. We may need to be prepared for that too. So let us pray for the Spirit of Christ to give us the discernment we need in these times. Now, there's a lot more that could be said about all these things, but let me, let me leave you with this gospel message. Whatever sins you and I have committed against the fifth commandment by failing to honor authorities, whatever sin we have, Christ has covered with His obedience and His suffering and His honor of the fifth commandment. So let us repent, own up our sins, and be forgiven. And whatever sins you and I may have committed as authority figures, whatever neglect, whatever unfairness we have been responsible for, Christ has covered over that as well. Let us repent and be forgiven. And if we have to make it up to somebody under our charge, if we wrong somebody under our authority, let's do that too. Clear it up and be forgiven. And let the Spirit of our Savior renew us to go forward to exercise godly authority and to humbly submit to authority in a Christ-like way. Amen.